Last week left me feeling real nostalgic with all that chat room banter. What type of trouble are we getting into this week? When an angry teen shoots and kills her beautiful young stepmother, it seems like an open and shut case. However, it's anything but. Join us this week to hear the twisted tale of the world's worst dad. Rife with manipulation, sociopathy, perverse sexual grooming, and six whole marriages. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast where normal people do very abnormal things because of lust, love, and the tantalizing madness of passion. <laughs> I'm abnormally interested in this dirty dad and his billion child brides. But first, quickly wanted to give a huge shout out to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review the show. Ratings especially are so important for new people to discover the show. So if you enjoy this, please consider leaving us one. It really makes a massive difference. It totally does. And we really appreciate it. We also love connecting with you on social media. So search Love Murder Podcast on Facebook or find us at Love Murder Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And if you have some killer case ideas for me, please email us at lovers at lovemurder.love. Okay. Are you ready for this twisty, turning, rambling, <laughs> wild is not exactly what it seems at the beginning story? I think so, actually. I think I'm kind of the long weekend made me in the mood for something like this, a little, yeah. little plot twist, you know? Exactly. This is kind of a – there's more than meets the eye in this story, which is really interesting. And also, um, usually I do like a tight intro and, <laughs> and make you listen to something dramatic. This time, I'm really kind of launching right into the story, so feel free to break in anytime. Ooh, mixing it up. I'm mixing it up. Yeah, I realized like the intro I wanted to write was actually like kind of right at the beginning of the action. So I was like, why not start there and just keep rolling, you know? Yeah, let's see how it goes. Exactly. So we're going to jump right into the action here. So Orange County homicide investigator Fred McLean stepped through the doors of 12551 Ocean Breeze Drive shortly after 4.30 a.m. on March 19th, 1985. He was there to investigate the shooting of a 23-year-old woman named Linda Marie Brown. She had been killed sometime after midnight, shot to death in her own bed. The likely murder weapon still lying on the shag rug carpeted floor. McLean swept through the house, noting the brand new furniture, empty prescription bottles on the counter labeled Darvacet and Diazide, and the portrait of a mismatched couple looming large in the living room. It depicted an older, overweight man with a pockmarked face and dark hair smiling beside a beautiful blonde who looked barely out of her teens. Underneath the portrait, the dark-haired man sat, looking much worse for wear, chain-smoking and shaking. Also seated in the living room was a baby-faced blonde, the spitting image of the woman in the portrait, yet not. She looked somehow even younger in person. She was clutching and shushing a crying infant. McLean asked a uniformed officer on the scene if the baby was the young woman's, and the officer clarified that the baby was the victim's. And the husband of the victim was the dark-haired man, David Brown. The lookalike was Linda's 17-year-old sister, Patty, who lived with the couple. 
missing from the house. Yeah. Yeah, this is a very weird family arrangement. Yeah. So the fourth person who lives in this house is David's 14-year-old daughter from a previous marriage. Cinnamon, that's her name. What? The do- Cinnamon, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, we'll get into why they named her Cinnamon later. Thank God. If you weren't going to get into it, I was going to be very upset. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cinnamon, the daughter, was the presumed shooter. McLean observed David Brown. The man's family had evaporated overnight. His wife, murdered. His daughter, a possible killer, had disappeared. He looked terrible. This guy is gross, like inside and out. Like, wait till we get into his life. But he also just looks like he's rotting. And the cops Um, and detective could tell right away, huh? Oh, right away. Yeah. I mean, he's just a really unhealthy looking guy. He looked easily 45 or 50, but they had initially interviewed him and he was only 32. What? Yeah. Wait till you guys see the pictures. We're going to put them all over the Instagram, obviously. But this is definitely a case of the (laughs) rotten inside matching the outside because he he looks just as bad, if not worse, than the socialite who dyed her hair white. And we were like, woof, that's 35. Wait till you see these pictures of him. You're going to be like, oh, my God. He looks like he looks like an old, like, gross, like, Dennis Franz from NYPD Blue. I don't know if you – that's a really old reference. Okay. You know what he looks like? He kind of looks like Ron Jeremy, to be honest. Oh, wow. <laughs> I met him at the Playboy Mansion, actually. Did you? Near the Is grotto. He short? Yes, he he's very short. short. But supposedly he has, like, the biggest dick in the world. I know. I I mean, I guess you got to have something. Everybody's got to have something. (laughs) I always thought, though, like, is it just proportion because he's so short, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe it's just impressive based on the package it comes from. You know, you're like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah. So we don't know if this guy's as well endowed. We have no idea whether he's packing, and I actually don't want to know. <laughs> okay, but he – think Ron Jeremy, only we don't want to be nice to this guy because he's going to turn out to be a bad guy. So okay. sorry, I always give you some spoilers, but he's not a good guy, so let's like say that he has like a three-incher. He's got a gherkin. He's <laughs> He wishes it was Ron Jeremy. <laughs> McLean questioned the exhausted man who seemed to have accepted the fact that his teen daughter had fatally shot his wife. He said that that day they had had his parents over for dinner and then they had played several hands of the card game Uno. Cinnamon had fought with the rest of the family over the game, eventually rage quitting and storming off to the travel trailer she stayed in the backyard. Linda and Manuela, David's mother, had also had a slight tiff about whether the eight-month-old baby, Crystal, should be left to cry or immediately get picked up, resulting in a disintegration of the fun and games and the eventual exit of his parents around 9 p.m. That evening, David was still upset about the disagreement, which had spawned his own words with Linda about Crystal. He was taking his mother's side, and he was really frustrated with this argument they had, and he couldn't sleep. Though they went to bed together that night, he eventually left Linda in bed sleeping and drove to a 24-hour mart nearby where he bought a Dr. Pepper, a Hostess apple pie, and inexplicably three or four comic books. Still not sleepy, he then drove to the beach to collect his thoughts and be soothed by the rhythmic waves. Finally, he stopped at a Denny's in Newport Beach to use the restroom before returning home. All of this had taken roughly an hour. He returned ready for slumber, but instead found a scene from a horror movie. 
Patty, the 17-year-old sister of Linda, greeted him at the door crying hysterically and holding baby Crystal. She said Cinnamon had tried to kill her and then shot Linda. So what Patty told the police is that she had left Cinnamon watching TV in the living room at like sometime around midnight. And then she was awoken by a gunshot in her room. And when she woke up, she saw Cinnamon backing out of her room holding the gun. So she instinctively looked at the clock at this point and noted that it was 2.23. Somewhere the baby started crying and then Patty heard a second and third shot. So she laid in bed for a moment because she was really scared and she was like kind of frozen with shock. But when Crystal started wailing, she forced herself to run to the nursery and grab the baby who was thankfully okay. So what room was she shooting into? Her own or into? So Cinnamon didn't have a room in the house, which is like, this is a bizarre configuration. Cinnamon bounces between her mother's house and David, who's her father's house. Okay. And she joins the family for, you know, like the games and the meals and she watches TV in the house and stuff. But the way the house is set up. Uh, There's a master suite where Linda and David obviously have their room. Then there's a baby nursery. And then there's Patty's room. And that's – it's just a three-bedroom house. So Cinnamon sleeps in a – like a travel trailer in the backyard. I mean, how does the sister get a room before the daughter? Yeah. And this is very weird. It's clear that something is amiss right away. Yeah. Um, The argument for why – the sister has a room and not cinnamon the way that they explain it to the police is that cinnamon kind of bounced back and forth between the houses and that she had roomed with patty like it was supposed to be the girl's room because they're only um two or three years apart depending on the time of year but that they say that cinnamon elected to live in the trailer rather than share with patty that's what they say okay I just want to tell you, there's a few things that I really like about this story so far. Okay. (laughs) One is that it takes place in California. Yes, we got an OC murder over here. Mm -hmm. Two, it takes place in 1985, which March 19th or whatever you said, March 13th is – March 19th. 19th, yeah. That's like less than a month from when I was born. I know. So you were a little baby, although you were far from California at that time. Very far, very far. It was in (laughs) Alabama. And third, the detective's name is McLean which is John McClane's name from Die Hard. Yes, I, I'm actually – I watched – ooh, this is a good time to do my sources. I watched one show on Investigation Discovery called Murder Board about this episode – I mean about this case. It is uh, season one, episode two, An Evil Affair is what it's called. And I'm really glad I watched it because it's spelled – looks like McLean, like L-E-A-N. Uh-huh. Um, but they pronounce it McLean, just yeah. like John McLean. <laughs> and um, where I got the inspiration and, and where all of my sources come from is Anne Rules, If You Really Loved Me, which I'm so excited we're finally doing an Anne Rule. She's basically the godmother of true crime. She's a total boss. I am so embarrassed I haven't read her main book. Her first book, which really like launched her was The Stranger Beside Me about Ted Bundy because she worked with Ted Bundy at the Crisis Center. She's a great – like she went on to become like a criminologist and she does great reporting of all these true crimes. So for this um, particular case, she was actually in the courtroom every single day and she followed the trial very closely. Yeah. Cool. So this is an Anne Rule case, y'all. Okay. So back to the night of the murder. 
So basically what Patty said is that she hid in her room with the baby and she was rocking her with the door closed and she put her back to the door in case Cinnamon came back. Eventually, sometime between 3 or 3.15, she guessed, she heard a noise at the door and David entered. So she told him what happened and he searched the entire house except for his bedroom where Linda was laying dying. So it's it's really, really bizarre that he did not go directly to his wife. Like he went and searched the house and did not go into the one bedroom that his wife was shot in. So so when the police obviously said that was really weird, Patty told them that he was terrified of what he'd find. He didn't want to see his wife that way. And he couldn't stand the sight of blood. How old was his wife? His wife was only 23. Whoa. Okay. And he's 32. Yeah, 32 going on 75. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But yeah, like who wouldn't immediately go check on their wife and the mother of their child? Yeah, it's something weird. And at that point, he instructed Patty to look for cinnamon in the backyard, which also strikes me as odd if she's like untethered from reality and is armed and dangerous, why he would tell another teenager to like carry the baby and go out in the yard and look for her yeah because he's obviously crazy yes so when she comes back in he's on the phone with his dad finally a voice of reason and his father tells him to hang up the phone immediately and call 911 or call the police rather yeah you know so the paramedics quickly arrive with the police and they bring linda who had been shot twice in the chest she was barely clinging to life at this point and she I can't believe she's up. still alive. Yeah, so she was just had like kind of a death rattle and a very very faint pulse, but she is declared dead upon arrival at the hospital okay. unfortunately. So upon collecting their reports, Fred McLean canvassed the backyard. It was approaching daybreak when he began searching the dog pen that housed a few red-painted dog houses. Enclosed in the pen were two Cocker Spaniels, a Pomeranian, and a small puppy all barking madly. The puppy had escaped the pen, so as Fred placed it back, carrying it through the gate, he realized with a shock that there was something or someone slumped in the dog house. Who? It's Cinnamon. So he gets down on his hands and knees and he realized it's a person, a very small person. And he whispers cinnamon and he reaches into the dog house and he feels a small hand grabbing his back. So awkwardly, her muscles are super cramped from being so long in the tiny dog house. A young girl crawls out. In the dawning morning light, he realized it definitely was Cinnamon Brown. He had recognized her from the pictures in the house. She was tiny, barely five feet tall, wearing a sweatshirt and sweatpants that were covered with reddish vomit in her own urine. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Something had happened to make this girl really, really almost fatally ill. Just past her in the doghouse, McLean could see nearly three dozen orange capsules still intact on the red pool of vomit on the floor. She was so tiny, she looked more like 12 than 14, and she clung desperately to the detective as he called for the other officers and helped her to her feet. She was clearly very, very ill, cold and drowsy, and looked nothing like the crazed teenage killer he had been expecting. After placing her safely in a squad car, he unrolled the pink piece of paper Cinnamon had been clutching tightly in her hand. 
untying the purple ribbon that encircled it. He read, Dear God, please forgive me. I didn't mean to hurt her. This suicidal confession and the following trial would become just the tip of the iceberg in a sordid story that would eventually include multiple murder-for-hire plots. Whoa. Yeah, this gets wild. So she had overdosed on the prescription medication that was in the empty bottles. So Darvaset is a pill that's kind of like like an opioid. So it's like a, a some type of tranquilizer. And diazide is a pill that treats fluid retention and high blood pressure. Ooh. It's a random combination. Not fun. Not fun pills. Not, n- not a party pill, man. Mm-mm. So let's talk about Cinnamon's parents, David and his first wife, Brenda. Let's. Let's do it. David Brown was born in Phoenix, Arizona on November 16th, 1952, the sixth of eight children. What? Yeah. There's a, like a couple of big families in this, and I cannot believe that in modern times people are having these many children. Whoa. But you're never going to get people to use condoms. Come on. So, yes, he was the sixth of eight children. David told contradictory stories of his youth. To some people, he said he had a wonderful childhood. But to others, what he described was horrific, bizarre, and violent. He seemed to have a hatred of his mother, which is never a good sign. When we talk about serial killers, there's always weird hangups with their moms. Yep. And beyond that, he described a number of traumatic assaults. He recalled being beat up by a gang of teenagers when he was only a child, being sexually molested by an old man in a park, and he did in fact witness a close relative's suicide attempt when he was only 10 and watched as the person stabbed themselves repeatedly in the wrist attempting to cut the arteries. Were any of these fact-checked? Uh, no, but Anne Rule did say that she believes there was probably molestation in his family, actually, okay. based on some of his behaviors later. It's very rare that somebody is molested by a stranger. It happens, but it's it's like, you know, nine times out of ten, it is somebody in the family. Yeah. And she believed that he was being honest about the molestation. He wasn't being honest about who did it. Yeah. Which it it's yeah. just too much to admit, you yeah. know? So his parents made all of the children work from a very early age to contribute to the family income. David would later proudly brag about running a gas station all by himself when he was only 11 or 12. Whoa. He was like a baby and he was like in charge of the overnight shift at a at a gas station. They had all their kids like working menial type positions. A little after this, his family moved to Long Beach, California. David claimed his only recourse to the abuse he suffered at home was to drop out of school and leave. He never had formal schooling past the eighth grade. When he was 15, he met a teenage girl named Brenda Curgis. Brenda's life was similarly bleak. She was the oldest of 11 kids. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Most of whom had different fathers that never stuck around. At 15, Brenda was barely keeping the household together, trying to do okay in school while simultaneously raising her 10 siblings on a shoestring budget. She was exhausted, depressed, and desperately looking for escape. Escape came to her in the form of the charismatic David Brown. He's actually, like, kind of cute when he's younger. He has, like, what Anne Rule describes as, like, almost an Elvis Presley-like look. He, like, is thinner when he's younger, and it's before the teenage acne really pockmarked his face. And, you know, he obviously has some sort of charm. You'll see throughout this that he always has a woman by his side. There's always somebody. Okay. 
Um, both teenagers felt deeply misunderstood, underloved, and really unappreciated. So they became extremely codependent, like the world to each other. Yeah. And they ended up running away just before Brenda turned 16. So they worked at a, a hotel where Brenda worked as a maid and David worked as a handyman. And this was actually probably the best time of their life. They finally had freedom and they could like, you know, live together and they could have sex and nobody was like, you know, looking over their shoulders. And for the first time ever, they had some pocket money for like clothes and money to go to the movies. And they had free room and board at this hotel as long as they were working there. It seemed like both of their families made them work or take care of their other siblings. And for the first time, they could just keep their money and use it for whatever they wanted, you know? Yeah. So they would often have sex like three to four times a day. Of course, they're teenagers. Yeah. Like alone for the first time. I'm surprised it was even more than that. <laughs> All of the fun and games ended when Brenda found herself pregnant. At what age? She had just turned 17. Oh, man. Could have been yeah. worse, I guess. It, it could have been worse. Yeah. They, they ran away together like when she was just about to turn 16. And then she found out, I think, I think she found out when she was about to turn 17. So they were both 17 when the two begged their parents to sign the consent forms for their underage marriage. And Brenda and David were married on May 13th, 1970, three months shy of their daughter's birth and seven months shy of their 18th birthdays. Wow. They named the tiny baby Cinnamon Darlene Brown. Brenda said, it was pretty and it was different and we wanted her to be special. In case she was ever famous, she would have that special name. Oh, honey. Oh, she gets famous, but not for what you'd like her to be famous for. Ugh. Spurred by his daughter's arrival, David entered the WIN program, which was the work incentive program through the welfare office, and he took his GED. He scored surprisingly well for somebody with only an eighth grade education. Brenda and David's marriage did suffer, though, as he became increasingly controlling. He wanted her home with baby Cinnamon completely dependent on him. He once flew into a jealous rage when a neighbor attempted to teach Brenda how to drive, even hitting Brenda. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. David didn't want her speaking to anyone else, and he didn't want her to get her driver's license. Which is really scary, really controlling, and absolutely ridiculous if you live in Southern California. America at all. Yeah. It's How are ridiculous. you not supposed to drive? Just a so, control thing. It's a complete con – he wants her at home where he knows she's stuck with the baby where he can check in on her. So eventually financial necessity did dictate that Brenda needed to get a job. And once she did, David began to accuse Brenda of infidelity with her coworkers – and he became more demanding sexually of her, like demanding sex up to like three times a day, even though she was exhausted from working full time and tending to an yeah. infant. Brenda, it might be time for you to hit the road. I think so. Eventually, David's sexual appetite outstripped his desire to be married and Brenda caught him making out with a woman in a cafe in 1974. Unbelievable. Uh-huh. Also, guys, just so you know, I had one – boyfriend like it back in my 20s who always accused me of cheating which was so bizarre because I, I was not and he was the only one that I know for absolute sure definitely cheated on me the other woman like contacted me on Facebook and was like gave me full-on details if somebody comes at you is controlling wants to get into your phone wants to first of all run but second of all they might be cheating too it's yeah projection textbook projection 
Brenda caught him making out with a woman in a cafe in 1974, and that woman ended up being Lori Carpenter, a co-worker of David's from Century Data, where David was working with computers. LOL, he blames her for making out with her co-workers, and he's making out with his. Yes, classic projection. Unbelievable. I mean, he's he's just a dirtbag. Like, the more we get to know this guy, the more you're going to hate him. That's like a boring amount of dirtbaggery. <laughs> yes, he really <laughs> picks it up a notch, though. Um, shortly after that, David surprised Brenda with divorce papers. Ew. During the contentious divorce phase, mm-hmm, David threatened physical violence on Brenda twice. Once holding a gun to her head and saying, if I can't have you, no one will. And we're not looking at this guy for murdering his wife? Yeah. At this point, I don't think the cops know this. He's presenting a very tidy front at this Mm -hmm. point. And once actually hitting Brenda with his car. What? So she was okay. It was like, it was more of a bump than anything. But I mean, that's aggressive. Like she's still, he still was intimidating her with a killing vehicle, you know? Yeah, that's a weapon. Yep. There's no doubt that David was sexually obsessed with Brenda as well. His entire life, he would revert back to the teenage Brenda he had saved as his perfect archetype of a woman. He liked them young, impressionable, desperate to escape bad situations, and girls he could easily mold to his liking and would become dependent upon him easily. Ew. Ugh, he's just a loser. This is what loser guys do. They try to find somebody that needs them. Yeah. So they can control them. It's a concerning theme in his relationships that would rear its ugly head often. At 21, Brenda had grown up and become independent. She was now too headstrong for him, and it revolted him. So good for you, Brenda. David worked doggedly during this time, achieving a technical degree in computer sciences from the Control Data Institute and working his way up the ladder at Century Data. Only months after his divorce, David married wife number two, Lori, his affair partner. He was 22 and Lori was 19. Though still technically a teenager, Lori was still a little too old for David and the second marriage ended in divorce only four years later when David found someone much younger and more compliant to devote his attentions to. Ew. Oh yeah, you're about to get real grossed out. David Brown encountered 13-year-old Linda Bailey when he's still living with Lori. She was pretty and blonde and sweet and, you know, a child. Oh, my God. She reminded David of what Brenda had been like when they first met. So I'm going to read you from Ann Rule's book a little bit about Linda. Like Brenda, Linda Bailey was one of 11 brothers and sisters in a home held together only tenuously by a single mother. From oldest to youngest, the Baileys were Sherry, Rick, Jeff, Tom, Pam, Linda, Alan, Randy, Larry, Ralph, and Patty. Ethel Bailey, born Ethel Anderson in Nebraska and trapped now in Riverside, California, was 42 years old, 42 with 11 kids, and overwhelmed by the emotional and financial responsibility for a near dozen offspring. Like Brenda's family, Linda's family lived on welfare payments. There were seven little kids at home living on noodles, rice, and Kool-Aid, David said. No meat. I know. No meat. Ethel spent her check on beer and cigarettes. I gave them a turkey and a large ham for Christmas. Nobody recalled exactly when David Brown began to visit the Bailey household in Riverside, but once he entered their lives, he became a familiar face, and he seemed at first like a godsend. Ew. It's, it's really gross. So apparently he and Lori had moved into this apartment that wasn't 
far from where the Baileys lived. And so I think he absolutely saw the teenage girls and kind of like made a choice to befriend them and look like this nice guy who could help them out. Okay. So David tells Ethel Bailey that he's dying of colon cancer, which was never true, with only months to live and that his wife is leaving him and they were having issues because he's a skis and asked if a couple of her teenage daughters can clean his house for him on a regular basis. Uh. And then so he would have the girls in his house without anyone watching and then he would often just show up at the Bailey's house and if the kids were eating cornflakes for dinner, which is like oftentimes the only thing they could afford, he would head to a pizza place or go to McDonald's and he would pick up like dinner for the entire family and bring it back. So they, of course, began to worship him because he just would like show up and he'd give them things. He essentially started grooming the entire family to yeah. think that his his association was normal, you know? Yeah. As the months went by, David didn't die, obviously, though he loudly complained of pain and rectal bleeding. What? Because <laughs> he was trying to make the whole colon cancer real. So he would like talk to Ethel Bailey and be like, oh, I'm feeling better, but you know, that rectal bleeding is still really <laughs> killing me. Guys, this guy is just... So he had garnered enough good faith for Mrs. Bailey at this point to start dating her daughter, Pam, who was only 15 at the time. So he is in his early 20s. I think he's like 23 or 24 at this point. And he gets permission to date a 15-year-old. But his eye was really on 13-year-old Linda. So I think that he was like testing the waters, normalizing dating teenagers within the family. And and like basically seeing how she felt about him dating her 15-year-old daughter so he could eventually work his way to the 13-year-old. Oh, gross. It's so gross. So while the relationship with Pam eventually ended, which all of the, this entire relationship, this this dating situation he had with this 15-year-old, which isn't dating or a relationship. It's, no. It's, it's rape, yeah. you know. It had entirely occurred while David was still legally married to Lori. And his relationship, even though things like didn't work out with Pam, continues. Like he is now like buying all of the kids' school school clothes. Like apparently they had never had um, clothes that were bought from a store. Like uh, the mother made all their clothes, which kids like you know we're talking like the seventies and the eighties. Kids didn't want that. They wanted store bought clothes. So he's buying them clothes. He took them to Magic Mountain and Disneyland. So it doesn't matter that he's preying on the kids at this point. How does he have so much money? Because right now he he's not really fully responsible for cinnamon. Him and uh Brenda were sharing responsibility. I'm pretty sure that when Cinnamon was little she was entirely with her mother. And I think he was making good money because he was working with computers in the early 80s, you know? Yeah. Also, these things, like, don't cost, like, a lot, a lot. Like, if he buys each kid a new outfit, and I don't think Magic Mountain and Disneyland were as expensive as they are today, you know? Yeah, they're, like, 130 bucks now. Remember when we went? Now it would be, like, impossible to take, like, seven kids. So they began to look at him as a father figure and Santa Claus all rolled into one. So he used these excursions to get closer to Linda 
and became a sympathetic listener to her tales of teenage woe and her resentment of the poor conditions of her upbringing. David presented himself, just like he had done with Brenda, as a way out. Still legally married, David began to officially date Linda when he was 24 and she had just turned 15 years old. Just waiting. Waiting for that today until she's he, he had a freaking clock down. Like he was waiting until yeah. it's so gross. A fifteen year old is a baby. Yeah. Come it's on. So bad. But she can't drive, so she he's got that working in his favor. Exactly. That's why he likes to get them before they can drive and drive away from him. <laughs> um a little after this, David announced a miracle. He was cancer free. He like <laughs> I can't with this guy. After Linda and David got together, Linda went to her sister-in-law, Mary's, who's the wife of her oldest brother, Rick, and begged for help getting birth control so she could be sexually active with David without worrying. So Mary tried to dissuade her from the entire relationship, but she really didn't want her getting pregnant, you know? Mm-hmm. But you so can't, like, oh, the- God. I mean, It's like, 15, if she was with another 15-year-old, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, like, this is just not okay. Yeah, exactly. And I think that Mary and Rick must be like the same age or still even younger than him. So they're like, this is fucked up. So basically what happens is that Mary does take her to the free clinic because she's just like, you know what, if you're having sex, you should get checked out. You need to get on birth control. Like you need to take as many condoms as you possibly can, you know? Yeah. Because she clearly wasn't going to dissuade her from the relationship. But Ethel finds Linda's birth control pills and kicks her out of the house. So she moved in with Rick and Mary for a little while. But literally the day she turned 17, she got consent from her mother and married David in Vegas. Oh, man. Yep. So she became David's third wife on June 21st, 1979. She was 17 and he was 26. So he's been married three times at 26. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's going the Marjorie route, man. Yeah. He's stacking them up. Yeah. <laughs> However, the honeymoon was short-lived. It appeared David had some reservations about marrying the teenager, and after living together for less than two months, they separated on August 14th, 1979, and they were divorced by the end of September. Though David claimed that the marriage broke up because of Linda's immaturity, which really? happens if you marry a 17-year-old. Uh, he actually already had a love interest a co-worker at his new employer of memorax named cindy david married wife number four cindy in may of 1980 and they separated on christmas eve of that same year holidays just got too intense you know (laughs) yeah so david described cindy as a beauty and a gorgeous one but complained that she had limited intellectual capacity and he didn't like being a stepfather to her two children from a previous marriage what a douche he's a huge douche simply put an adult woman with children didn't hold david's interest he admitted that he cheated on Cindy for the entirety of their marriage with none other than his teenage third wife, Linda, whom he claimed he had just never gotten over. So he was cheating on Linda with Cindy, and then he divorced Linda to marry Cindy, and then he cheated on Cindy the entire marriage with Linda. Ultimately, he broke up with Cindy, and Linda moved back into David's house on Christmas Day, 1980. So he's separated from Cindy on Christmas Eve, and Linda moves back in on Christmas Day. 
So this is obviously one day after his separation and months before his fourth divorce would be legalized. This time, the Bailey family wasn't as keen on the match. They could not understand how beautiful, sweet, kind Linda, who could have had her pick of young men her own age, would keep returning to this unattractive, overweight, boorish man almost a decade older than her. I mean, it's kind of like Stockholm Syndrome. Like, he had groomed her since she was 13 years old to be, like, the trusting male figure in her life. I feel like he was obviously sexually doing things with her. I think that she just decided that this was the one guy for her, the one who could understand her, you know? I'm not surprised at all that this was a hard relationship to break away from. So a year later, at the close of 1981, Linda became David's wife again, marking herself his third and fifth wife in a quickie Vegas ceremony. I was wondering, so you can do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you can – Elizabeth Taylor married one of her husbands twice. You can get married to the same person as many times as you want. <laughs> During this period, David starts his own company, which is called Data Recovery, that featured a proprietary process that recovers data from damaged computer disks. So this is the early 80s, so everything was kept on, you know, those old floppy disks Mm -hmm. and then backed up on hard drives. And David's area of expertise was recovering data from mini disks, and he had a 70% success rate in recovery. And this made him very hireable and ultimately profitable because literally, like, if there was a fire or a flood or there was any damage damage to these discs, like companies could completely go bankrupt, you know? Yeah. His main client was a company called Randomax. And from 1981 to 1984, so in only three years, he went from billing them $11,000 to $171,000. Whoa. Which would be something like $430,000 in today's money. So he was doing very well for himself, especially because that was only his top client, not all of his clients. So interestingly, the process was a lot less technical than you would think. It involved Q-tips rubbing alcohol in non-oily detergent. It's literally cleaning the discs. (laughs) So weird. It's so weird that this was like considered a highly technical skill. And I understand that like they obviously had to be cleaned in a very specific way. But yeah, like this is a – it's a computer company that is not – fixing computers the way that we imagine it these days, you know? Wow. Yep. So while David employed others, notably some members of the Bailey family, which is, again, him really ingratiating himself, making sure that he's he's taking care of everyone in the family so that no one can argue about how yep. badly he treats Linda. Yep. Um, the only other person who knew and could perform the process was Linda. So they were in actually a pretty great place at the beginning of the 80s. Shortly before their second wedding, Linda invited her youngest sibling, a girl child of 11, Patty, to come live with her and David. According to Patty, once Linda, who was the second youngest girl, left the house, one or more of her brothers had begun to molest her. Ooh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It said something about, like, the men in the house were molesting her. And definitely her brothers were part of that. But I also don't know if her mother had boyfriends. Yeah. I mean, it, it was definitely a more than one person type of thing. Yeah. Their mother was an alcoholic who was rarely home or, like, with it when she was home. So she was absolutely no help. Linda and David saved her by offering her a room in their home. Patty was deeply grateful and, of course, absolutely worshipped David. Yeah. 
Cinnamon bounced between her parents' homes at this point. She was an independent, fiery teen. She had, like, a really funny sense of humor. Like, she had a very, like, dry wit, and she was pretty outspoken, and she was never a problem child by any means. Like, she didn't get into trouble at all, but she was, like, a little mouthy, I guess you could say, because she had that, like, uh, wit, and she would like to talk back a little bit. Okay. So she seemed to live with whichever parent was, like, less pissed off at her at any given time, you know? Cinnamon was two years younger than Patty, and the two fought occasionally as teenage girls are wont to do. And a lot of the arguments came from Cinnamon feeling as though Patty was more a part of the family than she was. I mean, that's just evidenced by her having a full-time room in her father's house. Yeah. When Cinnamon doesn't. Yeah. And Patty really monopolized a lot of David's time, which inspired jealousy in Cinnamon, who was basically the same age as her and was like – why is my dad giving this other teenager who's not his daughter all this attention, you yeah, know? Yeah, of course. So Cinnamon often felt caught between the two families, truly belonging to neither. Brenda had remarried and had had a second baby girl. And in 1984, Linda was pregnant, also expecting a baby girl that July. So I think it was the typical thing of, you know, you are an only child from both of your parents' first marriage. Yeah. So you don't have any siblings that can relate to your experience. And then – your only siblings are like 12 to 14 years younger and they're your half siblings. So it feels like your parents both moved on with new families and you're completely left alone. Yeah. Not really fitting into each family, you know? Poor girl. Yeah. So she was very destabilized by this. So yes, the David moved the family into a new house on Ocean Breeze Drive. And this is just like I told you, it had three bedrooms and no room for Cinnamon, who ultimately ended up staying in the travel trailer in the backyard when she was staying with her father. Linda's pregnancy was difficult for her. And as she grew bigger and less attractive to David, she suddenly noticed her little sister's gaze falling towards him and began to suspect that something was going on between the two. And it wasn't, was it? Please tell me it wasn't. Well, at this point, we don't know. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you until later, but I think that I can understand where she's coming from because I absolutely believe that something happened sexually between them before she was 15. And I think that she's becoming this pregnant beautiful full figured woman as we all do in pregnancy and all of a sudden she's not the nubial teenage girl lith tiny bodied thing that he was attracted to you know and all of a sudden there's a younger model that looks just like her who is that you know gross so she doesn't know Like, if anything's going on for sure. So she begs David and her mother at this point to change the living arrangement. She is trying to send Patty back home, but David refuses. And Patty, of course, is totally against the idea and is like, of course, telling her, like, you're going to send me back to abuse because you're like a jealous old bitch, you know? Unbelievable. Um, Things did seem to improve when baby Crystal Marie was born on July 20th, 1984. Linda and Patty were getting along once more. David was elated at the birth of his second daughter, and Linda chalked up her misgivings to pregnancy hormones and the baby blues. Also, man, she lost all of that pregnancy weight, like, so fast. They talked about when um, she was carried out, her her corpse, which is so sad. The baby was only seven months old, and she was already, like, 123 pounds. Whoa. Like, that's so, so little. I haven't – I mean, I haven't been 123 since I was, like, 
11 in real life and to do that like only seven months after your baby is born like I feel like David was extremely unhealthy for her obviously and I I do feel like and I'm editorializing I don't know this for sure but it seems like she was working really hard to stay the ideal woman for him this brings us up pretty closely to Linda's murder and Cinnamon's arrest so after Cinnamon was brought to the police station it becomes apparent that Cinnamon had overdosed on something clearly because they could see those pill capsules in the doghouse the paramedics who examined her found her stable enough to answer some questions but she had to halt questioning once or twice to vomit orange red goo into a waste paper basket Ew. This, this is also crazy that they didn't take her directly to the hospital yeah that's crazy Mm-hmm. She clearly had overdosed on something and you don't take her directly to the hospital. They took her to the police station first for questioning. Ooh, I don't like that. Nope. No, no, sir. Um, so she was also complaining of a deadly headache, of course. Um, Detective McLean turned the prescription bottles over to the paramedics who said that without the constant vomiting, Cinnamon would have surely died. She told them that she had taken the complete contents of both bottles around 2.30 in the morning putting the time just before or after the shooting based on Patty's recollection and the medical examiner's report. McLean informed Cinnamon of her rights, like i.e. Miranda, yeah. and informed her that Linda had died and that she was suspected of the murder. Cinnamon seemed surprised that Linda had died and truly sad about it. She was still obviously out of it, but conceded that she had fired the shots and that her only excuse was that she had just not gotten along with Linda. So it's not really making any sense. Like, she's just like, yeah, I just didn't like her. Like, what? But she did admit to firing the shots. She said that she fired the gun. Okay. And they did do, uh, like, the gun powder residue test on her hands. And it didn't come – it came up as, like, extremely faint. But they think that's because she had puked all over her hands. Okay. When she was in the – the thing. And interestingly enough, there was some gunpowder residue on both David and Patty's hands as well. Well, I don't think that's interesting because of my skepticism, <laughs> but exactly. <laughs> Finally, Cinnamon's blood pressure dropped like crazy, of course, and she began to pass out. Finally, McLean concluded the interview and the paramedics rushed her to the hospital after Unreal. she was revived. I know, it's an, it's unbelievable. After she was revived and rested, she repeated her confession to another officer and a medical student. She disliked her stepmother. It was an accident. She had fired the shots that killed Linda. It seemed a classically simple case. The suspect herself had admitted the crime. Although the thought appeared to break his heart, her own father presumed she had done it. Cinnamon had asked Patty Bailey to show her how to shoot the thirty-eight only hours before Linda was shot. What other answer could there be? A jealous teenager resenting her stepmother, chafing at rules, regulations, orders to do chores, and believing that she was the object of hatred and rejection had struck back with a gun. She was sorry now, horrified to hear that Linda had died, but it was far too late. So basically at this point, the investigators are still very confused about how everything happened, but it kind of seems like they have the suspect. She's confessing to it. You know, she tried to commit suicide afterwards. It's kind of an open and shut case. So the case is going to trial, but the investigators still need to gather evidence. Some people that they talk to are Brenda, Cinnamon's mother, and Cinnamon's friends. Cinnamon's best friends are completely shocked by the shooting. Uh, they deny that Cinnamon ever used drugs or alcohol, and they could not remember an instance of her not getting along with Linda. 
Even though Linda was only 23, she was truly another mother figure to Cinnamon. Brenda echoes what the girls say, reiterating that though the two argued, Brenda and Cinnamon sometimes argued, as mothers and teen girls do, she never felt like Cinnamon was a bad kid or out of control in any way. She had never expressed any hatred towards Linda. Brenda was completely blown away by this. She said something that immediately piqued the detective's interest. David and Patty had beat the investigators to Brenda's house. David told Brenda that Cinnamon had overdosed on medication that she had stolen from him, and he told her not to tell the detectives that Cinnamon was always a good-behaved girl, even though she was in Brenda's estimation. So he weirdly was like, I know that you think Cinnamon's a good girl, but that's not what you should tell the cops. You should tell her that that she's, like, disruptive and unruly and depressed and suicidal. Huh? Mm-hmm. And David told her that the gun she had gotten her hands on, because, of course, Brenda's like, how did this happen? Where did she get a gun? Why would she do this? Like, why did she try to kill herself? But it doesn't make any sense to the girl's mother, you yeah. know? And so he told her that the gun she had gotten her hands on was Linda's, which wasn't true. It was David's. And Patty backed David up on, like, everything that apparently Brenda just didn't know that they had been fighting really badly. So, like, Patty's like, no, they've been fighting. She just must not have told you that the gun was Linda's, that, like, basically all of this stuff. Brenda also said that Cinnamon had never been suicidal or violent, which were two things that David also claimed. She said, if anything, Linda was afraid of David and also fearful that David would leave her for Patty. When Detective McLean commented... So Brenda knew all that? Brenda knew this too because at one point, I guess that Brenda and Linda talked on the phone because Linda wanted to get baby Crystal baptized and David didn't. And she was talking to Brenda about it because she was asking if Cinnamon had been baptized. And she was talking about how she was going to maybe like try to sneak Crystal to get baptized because it was important to her. But she was like, but David would kill me. And the way she was talking about it was like she literally thought David was going to kill her. And then he was like coming home and she was like, I have to get off the phone. I'm so sorry. I have to go right now because like David was like coming in. And she was like, she was terrified. And I guess that Cinnamon told her that – things were not going well at the house when uh, Linda was pregnant and that Linda was getting frustrated that uh, Patty was still in the house. And Cinnamon, I think, told it to her mom in the way that was like, oh, I might get Patty's room when I stay there because, like, Patty might move out because, you know, Linda's not happy with her because, you know, she's been weird about dad and stuff like that, you know, just like a teenager would. Yeah. And Brenda, having been a teenage wife of David's was like, I know exactly what's going on in that house. Yeah. Being the first teenage wife of David. Exactly. So when she said this to Detective McLean, he's like, but Patty's only 16 or 17, isn't she? And Brenda said slightly bitterly, David likes them young. Linda was younger than that when he started with her and so was I. So this is the first inkling that – Yeah, get it, Brenda. This is the first inkling that the detectives have that – He's a creep. Yeah. You know? Okay. In an interview with Linda's twin brother, Alan, the detectives discovered that Patty had been pulled out of school and David had claimed to have hired a tutor to homeschool her. But this was very suspicious because A, there was no tutor. B, (laughs) Andy's doing the blowjob face. (laughs) Um, There was no tutor, but he had done the same thing with Linda when he started dating her at 15. He had told her mother that he needed help with his company and that Linda could be like making money and learning a trade and she didn't need to finish high school. So he's now doing that with Patty. 
Cinnamon celebrated her 15th birthday in the juvenile hall on July 3rd, 1985. And then she began trial for first degree murder on August 7th of the same year. Poor girl. I know she's a baby. Mike McGuire was the DA and Jane Newell was the DA's investigator assigned to the case. The prosecution's case seemed like a slam dunk. While Cinnamon's initial confessions to the police officers before she was hospitalized were rightfully thrown out. Thank goodness. The judge did allow for Kim Hicks' testimony, and Kim was the medical student that she had also confessed to. Okay. Cinnamon seemed confused and bewildered during the proceedings, seeming as though she had no idea how she got there or why she was standing trial. She said later she could not follow the trial nor understand all the clipped official police lingo and the medical testimony. She was just like in a daze. She was super out of it, and she was like, I know this is important to my life, but I cannot follow what's going on. She was hurt by her father's absence. So basically her dad, David, said that he was sick. Again, he like pulled this, like he wasn't saying cancer this time, but he was saying he was having all of these different medical issues and <laughs> and like got doctors to say that he could not come and testify. Other terminal illnesses that he wants to pull out of his asshole. Exactly. They're like literally making him bleed out of his asshole yeah. apparently. Um, and so he's not there at all. So he's not there to support her. He's not there to testify. Um, and she's also surprised when Patty testifies for the prosecution about like how badly she was getting along with Linda and everything. And Cinnamon would have been even more shocked if her father had actually testified. This is from Ann Rule's book. David Brown's name was heard in the courtroom, but he was not there. He sent word to the district attorney's office that he was too ill to attend his daughter's trial. His testimony was offered by stipulation. Mike McGuire explained that if Brown were called as a witness, he would testify to the events of March 18th and 19th. Whether Cinnamon understood that her father, if he came to court, would have been against her and not for her was unclear. If David Arnold Brown was called as a witness, he would testify that he'd kicked Cinnamon Brown out of the house three weeks prior to March 19th, 1985, and then it was agreed upon that Cinnamon Brown would live in the trailer in the backyard. David Brown would also testify that Cinnamon Brown and Linda Brown were not getting along in the weeks prior to March 19th, 1985. David Brown would also testify that Cinnamon Brown was told that either she lived in the trailer or she went back to live with her mother. What did stipulate mean? Cinnamon still didn't understand what they were saying. That both Ugh. sides had just stipulated that her father believed she was guilty. So he's not Poor there, baby. but he would have said she was guilty. And she just had no idea what was going on. On Monday, August 12th, Judge Fitzgerald found Cinnamon Brown guilty of first degree premeditated murder. Cinnamon's attorney then had to prove to the judge that she had not been mentally well at the time to mitigate the sentence. For the next month, both sides would call witnesses to testify to different potential mental issues, including a doctor who said that she was suffering from a dissociative disorder, a psychogenic amnesia type with a history of depression. This was due to the fact that while Cinnamon knew she had apparently shot Linda, she could not remember that night at all, nor could she remember actually pulling the trigger. So the entire time that she is testifying... She cannot say what happened during that day. She can't say what she did that day before the killing. She is like having this blank spot in her memory about the entire 24 hours. Brenda has to just be like losing it. Mm Mm-hmm. So in the end, Judge Fitzgerald found Cinnamon mentally sane and set the sentencing date to September 13th, 1985. David Brown 
finally made his one and only appearance in court on the day of his teenage daughter's sentencing for the murder of his wife. What a tool. So he's such a tool. Like this is the last day that he can't be called. Nothing can happen to him. And he's finally showing up for her. The DA's investigator kept an eye on him and was confused by his absolutely bizarre behavior. So David was sitting behind Brenda, his first wife. And he's reaching out and grabbing her hair and pulling it like a little boy, like would in class to a girl he has a crush on. And then he starts kicking the seat and like kick trying to kick her feet under the seat while they are literally in court about to see their only child together be potentially sentenced to God knows for how long in jail. What? Yeah, so the 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 investigator Jay Newell is like, okay, something's seriously wrong with this guy. No normal parent would act like this, and he's especially interested because he has daughters the same age as Cinnamon. So he's like, okay, first of all, I feel for this kid. As the investigator for the DA, he has to find the evidence to support the DA in punishing her clearly. Yeah. But he's really conflicted about it because he knows that he has children her own age and he feels like something's not right there and then to watch her father behave like that when he's a father of teenage girls he's like okay my my detective instincts are kicking in that something's wrong with this guy but also as a father fuck this guy yeah yeah and his dad Mm -hmm. instincts are kicking in that there's something fucked up going on Exactly. So he finally stops his shenanigans when the judge comes in and um, gets the court ready for the sentencing. He sentences Cinnamon, who is at that point only barely 15, to 27 years to life. So she would be in prison until the age of 42, possibly much longer. Like she could end up in prison for the rest of her life. She was sentenced to the California Youth Authority facility, um, one called Ventura School, where she could receive psychiatric help and be housed with girls her own age, which that at least is good because we don't want her with the adult population, obviously. She would be moved to a woman's prison when she came of age. Both Cinnamon and her mother were shocked and in tears, of course, and both Cinnamon and Investigator Jay Newell's eyes swept the room for a glance at David, but both he and Patty had left as soon as the sentence was handed down. What? He didn't even wait to, like, try to talk to his daughter. He just left. Whoa. So yep. he, him and Patty are in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The case was officially over, but Jay Newell had a strong gut instinct that justice had not been served. With permission from the DA's office, he continued his investigation into David Brown's life. And he actually himself is on the Murder Board episode, which aired in 2019. So I usually try to watch whatever episode is the most recent because they give the most recent updates on the people involved in the case. Yeah. And he's so sweet because he was young in this. He was a young father of teenage girls and now he's like older and gray and he is just the sweetest guy in the world. And he did get permission from the DA to continue investigating, but they told him he had to do it on his own time. So he literally was working on whatever cases the DA gave him. And then like in his off hours before and after work, he was investigating this on his own. He knew that a a teenage girl was in pain and was suffering. And he also knew that- And her her life is over. (laughs) Her life is over. I mean, even if she only got 10 years, that's a very crucial time in your life yeah. that is completely taken away from you. Yeah. And he knows that there's a dirt bag walking on the street and has a very suspect relationship with a teenage girl, yeah. you know, who's still in his house. 
Ugh. Yep. So Patty and David moved with baby Crystal to a mansion in the exclusive Anaheim Hills. It appeared that David had somehow come into some money. Jay Newell doesn't know what happened. Um, he's still tracking down, trying to track down all of um, David's finances. But he knows that it, it appears that David has come into some money. Life insurance? We can, we can guess where that money came from. Exactly. Um, so he buys a mansion like in cash and he moves into it in the exclusive Anaheim Hills with Patty and the baby. Oh, course, cute like, little happy family. Oh, so gross. So some family members thought it was strange that 17-year-old Patty was still living with David. Like, because the point was that she was moving in with her sister. If her sister's gone, why is she still there? Yeah, you know? but how at this point are you shocked that this dude, that this is ha- that anything's happening with this I know. dude? I mean, he's, he's had teen bride after teen bride. Like, Also, I can't believe the Bailey family would be surprised because he also dated their older sister. So David claims that he needs Patty to stay living with him because of Crystal, because he needs help taking care of the baby. However, he also had moved his parents into the guest house on the property, and they were the primary caretakers, not Patty. And Patty just basically went everywhere with David. If he went to work, she went with him. If he was home, she was with him. She never, like, went anywhere without him. Hmm. So Jay Newell kept up his dogged pursuit during this time. He would later say, It sounds dull. I didn't do anything that dramatic. I just watched him and followed him and monitored public records. I'd see him leave the house, often with Patty Bailey, and I'd see him come home. I wanted to know who this man was, where he went, and what he was doing. I was never far behind him, but I doubt he realized it for months. It's like, yes, Jay Newell, you stay on that dirty dog. (laughs) So – To no one's surprise, but no one knew about this, on July 1st, 1986, David took a sixth wife in Vegas. He married Patty Bailey, his former sister-in-law, in in the We've Only Just Begun Wedding Chapel. Whoa. You're speechless. You're speechless right now. Whoa. How? How? Honestly, I think he – I think she wanted to get married, and I think he did it to keep her quiet about the murder. Because despite the marriage being 100% legal and even including a lengthy prenuptial agreement, David never admitted the marriage was legitimate. He claimed it wasn't legal because he purposely lied on the marriage certificate. He later said, I knew we weren't married. Patty might have thought we were married. Oh, my God. You got a prenup drafted up. Yeah, you got a prenup for a non-real wedding. (laughs) There was no reception and no announcement to friends or even immediate family. This seemed to be a move to keep Patty happy, dare I say, quiet, but done covertly and without much pleasure from David. They kept the marriage hidden from David's parents, who were living with them, and mystified to why he kept the teenager around, and they also kept it hidden from Cinnamon. I mean, Uh, is he even, like, talking to her anymore, or he just... She just got He like occasionally visited her. And so he calls her Cinny. That's her nickname. When David sporadically visited Cinny, he left Patty at home or he left her waiting in the car and he purposely <laughs> didn't mention Patty. Yeah. Rough Patty. Patty's like he rolls the window down for her like a dog, leaves her in there. <laughs> Meanwhile, oh, God, actually, mentioning the dogs, this is so tragic. Um, The investigator, remember there were the dogs at the beginning? Yeah, the Pomeranian and Cocker Spaniel and Puppy. and the Puppy. And apparently, you have such good recall. That's so good. (laughs) 
apparently Cinnamon was the one taking care of the dogs. And when she went to jail, all of the dogs got terrible lice and fleas. And they ended up dying of having like uh, fleas and dehydration. That's disgusting. They just allowed those dogs to just languish and die. Like by the time they brought them to the vet, they were too gone. Yeah. I mean, David obviously doesn't care about anyone but himself. Ugh, it's just revolting. Like, those are cute little puppy dogs. I know. Well, a Pomeranian and a Cocker Spaniel really shouldn't be outdoor dogs anyway. Like, when you said that at the beginning, I was like, that's fucked up. That's totally fucked up. So, meanwhile, Cinnamon was doing well but not progressing in prison. Though she was recommended for a time cut from her sentence for good behavior and positive adjustment to the program, the parole board wasn't even interested in speaking to her until she could acknowledge her crime and start atoning for it. I mean, she still was saying, I don't know what happened that day. So, and and the parole board doesn't want to hear, like, I don't know what happened. They want to hear, like, I acknowledge that I uh, committed this crime and that these are the ways that I'll do better and I've learned from it, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is just something that she cannot do or won't do. Um, Because of Cinnamon's refusal to discuss the night Linda was murdered, a parole agent requests investigators to speak to her grandfather, David's father, who had suggested on a visit with Cinnamon that he knew who Linda's real killer was. Okay. So Cinnamon told one of her parole officers that her grandfather knew who the real killer was. So Jay Newell responded to the request and managed to speak to Arthur Brown while David was away from the home. Arthur very nervously told Newell that he knew Patty was the real killer. He overheard Patty telling Cinnamon that Linda was plotting to kill David and that Patty would kill Linda first before she allowed that to happen. So... Arthur believed that Cinnamon was taking the fall for Patty, but he didn't know why. Arthur would later report that he spoke to an investigator to an infuriated David. So he later told David, hey, I talked to this investigator. He didn't tell him what he said. He didn't say, I pinned it on Patty. He basically was like, this guy was sniffing around the house. I didn't tell him anything. I just wanted you to know that they're still after you. Because I think at this point, David thought he was pretty much in the clear. And he still went off on his dad, even though he like didn't. Oh, yeah. Even though he didn't think his dad said anything, he still was, like, pissed for even. He's like, you should have slammed the door in his face. Don't ever talk to him ever again. And then he raged at Patty and forced her to burn the paper copy of their marriage certificate and any photos from their private wedding ceremony, which is so stupid. Obviously, they filed it. It's there's The records are there. But he was trying to get rid of any evidence of their marriage. David became even more frustrated in February 1987 when Patty joyfully told him she was expecting their baby. Ew. Uh Uh-huh. He was outraged at what he considers Patty's stupidity and demanded she have an abortion. For the one singular time in her life, Patty refused David. Wait, 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 wait. Did you say that he was offended by her stupidity? Oh, yeah. He thought she was really, really dumb for getting pregnant. But What about when he ejaculated inside of her vagina? Well, this one's on Patty. Okay. Because Patty had actually tricked David into impregnating her. She had told him that a doctor told her that she was infertile. That sounds familiar. (laughs) Yeah. So they didn't need to use birth control. But, I mean – in my parents' situation, my mom really was supposed I to know. be in battles. And honestly, if there was anyone tricking anyone into anything, it's my dad tricking her into marriage. <laughs> <laughs> so she basically told him she was unable to have children knowing 
full well she was able to have children. So this was bound to happen. Honestly, um, though, then, it's like so – it's totally apropos yeah, because he's totally apropos. been lying to her family since he met her when she was like, what, seven? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is like – she's like playing the player right now. Yeah, it's great. You know? Yeah, he deserves any any piece of deception that comes his way. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the only loser in this case is the poor baby. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so she basically acts surprised when she gets pregnant. She's like, I also didn't know this was possible. It's a miracle, you know? <laughs> so that's why he's so angry, and that's why he demands that she get an abortion, and she refuses. Okay. So he has always gotten her to do anything he wants, no matter what. And this is the one time she's like, you can't make me do this. So good. Mm-hmm. Um, so now he knows that the cops are still sniffing around. And he knew that impregnating his teenage ward would obviously look bad. He is Teen- feeling very fucked. Teenage ward who is his dead wife's sister. Yep. So poor, sweet Heather Nicole Bailey was born in September of 1987. David would never claim her as his own. He forced (gasps) Patty into a cover story that included a made-up boyfriend named Doug who had fathered the baby and then took off. His parents, not wanting to acknowledge the truth, went with the lie even though they later reported they had barely ever seen Patty leave the house without David and they had never, ever seen her in the company of any young men. These parents just have to like, they have to know what's going on. Honestly, I think that they never had much money and he's paying them to live in his guest house and he's taking care of them and all they have to do is watch his baby. I think this is a case where he is manipulating everybody around them with his wealth. Yeah, that's just bribery. Like, that's Mm -hmm. just – It's just convenient for them not to notice or not to raise the issue of how terrible their son is. And I think that people do this with their kids all the time, even without their kids paying for stuff. They don't want to acknowledge the real truth that they raised a monster. Yeah. Yep. (sighs) So Jay Newell noticed the pregnancy through his monitoring of the Browns' comings and goings, and he knew in his gut that the child was David's. He was pretty sure that David and Patty were involved with Linda's murder, if not directly the actual murderers, but he wasn't allowed access to the one person who could clarify, Cinnamon. So the reason he couldn't talk to Cinnamon is because she was underage, and at the time that she went into the juvenile hall, she had been in, like, the custody of David. Like, he had been the custodial parent. Okay. So only David can give permission for people to speak to Cinnamon. Yeah, they should have they should have sorted that out before it should have been. They should have yeah. had switched to Cinnamon's mother, yeah. Brenda. So so they they're completely prevented from speaking directly to Cinnamon until she turns 18. So to try to bypass this, Newell passes photos of Patty pregnant, of the beautiful new mansion the two of them were living in, to her parole officer so that her parole officer could show her the beautiful life that they were living on the outside together while she was locked up and plant that seed of doubt in her head. Yeah. He also told her through the parole officer that he would be eager to speak to her after she turned 18 to hear her side of the story. On July 19th, 1988, 16 days after Cinnamon Brown's 18th birthday, Jay Newell finally got the call he had been waiting for. Cinnamon wanted to talk. In August, Jay Newell and Fred McLean traveled to the California Youth Authority to speak with Cinnamon. 
And woo boy, did she <laughs> have a story to tell them. Oh, no. <laughs> David had planned and discussed the murder for months before it happened, aided and abetted by Patty. Patty told Cinnamon that she had overheard Linda on the phone with her twin Alan plotting David's death, exactly what Grandpa Arthur had overheard. Over the next few weeks, David convinced Cinnamon that either she or Patty would have to kill Linda to keep him safe. Either that or he would have to go into hiding, leaving her alone forever. Cinnamon was traumatized at the thought of losing her father as she was already living a destabilized life bouncing between her parents. She didn't understand why David couldn't just get a divorce and leave Linda, why it had to be murder. And she got even more confused when the family took a trip to Walmart together and apparently Linda and baby Crystal stayed behind in the car so that Linda could change Crystal's diaper. Uh-huh. And Cinnamon went into the store with David and Patty, but they got separated. And then Cinnamon came up an aisle and saw David and Patty kissing. Oh, my God. You can't keep it in your so- pants for like a minute. Ugh, so she knew something was off with this, but I think she was very under her father's spell, so she doesn't even question him. So she discussed with the investigators when her father asked her to directly kill Linda. And I'm going to read this from the book. I was all like, well, how do you guys plan on doing it? And he goes, we need your help. Cinnamon closed her eyes, reliving the drive with Patty and David and repeating what he had said to her. He goes, do you love me, Cinnamon? I love you. Don't be stupid, I said. And I hit him on the back of the head. Do you love me? And I said, of course I love you. And he goes, how much do you love me? I said, I love you a lot. I love you more than anything. And he goes, would you do anything for me? And I said, yeah, I'd do anything for you. I love you. I want to make sure that you love me enough that you'll do anything for me. Of course, don't be ridiculous. I know. Just This is just revolting. This is the person who's supposed to keep you safe. Instead, he's manipulating her into killing for his own benefit. I'm being serious with you, David had said. And I said, I'm being serious with you too. Then I started getting emotional. I was figuring, oh no, he's going to leave me. I know he's going to leave me. He goes, "Mm, I'm thinking about leaving. No, please don't leave. And immediately he goes, well then how are you going to help me? For an instant, Cinnamon remembered that she had felt as though she had just stepped through a door that had slammed shut behind her. And then she reassured herself that her father had always known what he was doing, that he was always in charge. They rode along in silence for a long time and she began to relax. It was the same sick joke again, some kind of test of her loyalty. Suddenly her father spoke again. I need you to help me. I need you to help me get rid of her. Do you want me to kill her? Cinnamon said, half whispering. I want you to help. Yes. And if you feel you have the stomach for it, I want you to do it. Oh my God. I know. I know. It was still like moving underwater to Cinnamon, an alien environment. Her own voice echoed in her ears, and she heard her voice shake. I like horror movies, but I don't have the stomach for that. You know me. I didn't think you would, David said. I don't either. Cinnamon said she looked at Patty and said, does she? David explained that he and Patty had been discussing it. I don't even know what you guys are talking about, Cinnamon had cried. I don't know what's going through your heads. David's voice was very deep, very calm, and very determined. Cinnamon could see his eyes looking back at her from the rear view mirror. If you love me, you'll trust me. Just believe what I say. I'm your father. I know what's best. Ugh. Uh-huh. The night of the murder, David told Patty and Cinnamon that it had to happen that evening. 
He told Cinnamon that he had decided she should be the one to pull the trigger because it wasn't fair for Patty to have to kill her own flesh and blood sister. And because Cinnamon was only 14, the court system would be lenient on her. He said that she would probably only have to stay in the facility for a few weeks and then get to come home. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. And then David would be safe and they could live happily ever after. David even asked her to graze her head with a bullet after she shot Linda to make it look like an accident and that overcome with grief she had attempted suicide. So he's asking her to shoot herself in the head with a gun. Yeah. Cinnamon knows that there's no way she could shoot herself in the head without killing herself or getting serious brain damage, obviously. Yeah. And said so. Then David brought out the pills, so he had plan B already. Oh, my God. The sick fuck. He is so sick. After having her write the suicide note found in her hands later on, he had her down the entire contents of two full prescription bottles. Even in her retelling of the crime, she still didn't seem to entirely grasp that her father was trying to kill her too to accomplish the perfect crime. Deranged daughter kills wife and then self. Case closed. Also, he would have been very happy if she had managed to kill herself because he had quite a few insurance policies on cinnamon as well. <gasps> mm-hmm. So that oh, that makes absolutely, me sick. That was his intention all along. He wanted her to kill his wife and then kill herself. Oh, Mm -hmm. my God. So at this juncture, (laughs) Cinnamon is still nervous and initially lies to Newell and McLean, saying that she got sick and had to crawl into the doghouse before the murder takes place, so she doesn't know exactly who shot Linda. But later, so I'm just, like, summing it up, because originally she tells them, like, I still don't know who exactly did it. I wasn't present. Mm -hmm. But later she recants and tells the detectives the whole truth that she was nervous to tell them which is that after she took the pills and wrote the note, her father gave her a pillow and instructed her to put it in front of the gun as a makeshift silencer. (laughs) And then directly afterwards, he left to establish his own alibi for the exact time of the murder. And he was like, it better be done by the time I come home. So Was Linda sleeping? Sorry. Linda was totally asleep for this entire thing. Okay, okay. Yep. So she was out um, and she had the baby monitor next to her bed. (laughs) So sad. Egged on by Patty, she took the gun and shot Linda twice in her chest while she was fast asleep. And so then, you know, Cinnamon's like shaking and apparently the pillow got stuck on the gun after she had fired through the pillow. Okay. And so she goes into Patty's room to try to get the pillow off the gun and Patty's holding the baby and Patty's pulling the pillow off the gun and the gun goes off. And thank God doesn't hit anyone, including the infant. Oh, my God. This is just I mean, like that's a miracle. Laced it, with it, stupidity. I mean, it's two teenagers left alone with a murder plot and a baby. So that's why there was that shot in Patty's room, which – Also, the investigators were very confused by because according to Patty's testimony, the the shot in her room had happened first. And they thought that's really weird because Patty's room was near Linda and David's room. So why would it wake up the baby but not not Linda? Linda. Yeah, no. The whole Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. So they already had a big question mark about this. And so now this 
this story, the real story, makes sense to them, you know? So Cinnamon then, woozy and feeling ill, went to go hide in the doghouse as David had instructed before she left. He told her to go hide in the doghouse. I think he wanted her out of the way so she would die. Like, if they're not going to immediately find her when they search the house. Yeah. And they're not going to immediately go into the dog pen or the dog house in the dog pen. No, and she's overdosed and she doesn't know that she's overdosed. So, Mm -hmm. sick. So, I don't don't know why she would be like, why can't I just go lay down in my bed, you know? But she does exactly what he says and she goes and lays down in the dog pen. So the investigators feel vindicated and energized by the new information. This is – it confirms all of their suspicions, yeah. you know. Cinnamon is still nervous to testify against her father, but her resolve hardens when she finds out that David has fathered a baby with Patty, whom he had told Cinnamon had moved out and was no longer part of his life. Gross. So lied, lied, Gross. Lied. And that David had collected nearly a million dollars in life insurance. Another thing he had lied to Cinnamon about. He had said that he had made no money in this. In fact, he had lost money because Linda worked for him, so he lost somebody working for him. And he certainly didn't tell her that he had life insurance policies out on Cinnamon. So she's now finally like over it. She's finally realized the, the truth. And yeah. Yep. She agrees to wear a wire to their next two meetings. Great. Yep. The first time it's just David and Cinnamon. And then the second time the investigators get her to convince David to bring Patty so they can also get her incriminating herself on tape. Um, While David and Patty try to talk around the actual murder and neither directly cop to it, the language is clear enough to corroborate Cinnamon's story and confirm their roles in the murder plot. So they don't never, they never like fully say like, there's no bombshell like Patty's like, I'm the one who shot her, you know? But it's clear that they all had plotted this together. In the first conversation... David talks a lot about how it's like Patty's fault. It was Patty's idea. Patty overheard Linda doing this and that, you know, Patty was just as much at fault that Cinnamon was. And, you know, they didn't know she was going to get so long of a time. And maybe Patty could go in for Cinnamon. Like, it was like not making sense. Like, obviously, legally, you can't do that. (laughs) And so she was like, well, bring Patty here and have Patty tell me that she's willing to go to prison for me because I've already done three and a half years and she's done nothing so why don't you bring her here so when they had patty come back with him (laughs) patty was basically saying like yeah i mean if there's a way that i could like do some of your time i would like you know like it was so clear like she's not saying exactly what she did but she's saying like we you know i understand and and they just keep talking about like you know, this was necessary. Like, you know that Linda was going to kill David. You know that Linda was like, you know, addicted to drugs and and trying to take over David's company and she was going to hurt him. And so they're like sticking to the story, but this is obviously the reverse of what they had said to the police. Yeah. So just the, the way that they're speaking to Cinnamon and the way they're talking about it was completely enough. Cool. So they do get a warrant to arrest David Brown and Patty Bailey. Uh, for conspiracy to commit murder. At 7 a.m. on Thursday, September 22nd, 1988, Jay Newell and Fred McLean have the pleasure of taking the two villains into custody. Yes. David and Patty did not seem surprised. I'm sure they weren't. On their way to the police station, Patty and David said little. The tape on the recorder in the police car retrieved later added almost nothing to the investigation except for one thing Newell remembered. 
David kept asking Patty about Heather. He kept saying, now who is Heather's father really? He was doing it for our benefits. Unreal. Uh Uh-huh. Well, why not? We believed he'd thrown away one daughter already to get what he wanted. Why not throw away Heather? She was only a mistake to him. In denying Heather the child who had come to mean more than life itself to Patty Bailey Brown, David may well have made the biggest mistake of his life. Patty would have done anything for David until Heather was born. When he failed to love their child, the tiniest seed of rebellion took root in Patty. Was it possible that David was not her savior, her ultimate lover, the most wonderful man who had ever lived? I mean, unbelievable. He's in the cop corps being like, so who is the father of your child? Unreal. Mm-hmm. So once back at the station, Newell and McLean began to interview David. He talked and he talked and he talked and he talked. Let's just say this guy did not dummy up. He is just a blowhard. He bragged about his success in business and complained of multiple maladies, some seeming real and some definitely imagined. Discussing Linda, he painted a picture of a loving relationship, a huge departure from his comments on Cinnamon's secret recording, where he called her a greedy drug addict who was plotting to kill him to take over his business. (laughs) They tried to drill down on his memories of the day of the murder, but he veered wildly between overstating his own importance. Like he said... They were like, what did you do the day of the murder? And he's like, you know, I was probably on the phone to the Pentagon, as I, I often am. Really? Uh-huh. Really, dude? Um, He talked about his emotional well-being, saying that he had thought about suicide every single day since his beloved wife had been killed. He talked about his physical ailments, of course. Sure. And even bizarrely, he talked about his sex life with his deceased wife. Ew. Yeah, this is going to sound, this is really gross. So this is from his interview um, with Jay Newell and Fred McLean. Do you remember that night, though, Newell cut him off with the same question each time David wandered? Despite his protestations that he had no independent memory of that night, Newell urged David to search the computer banks of his mind. We made love, David said. (laughs) You had sex. We made love, yes. When you say you made love, you mean you had sexual intercourse. I don't remember specifically that night. Linda, that's one of the things I loved about her. She had quirks, you know, things she loved to do. This is the official interview transcript. Gross. One of her things was, whenever possible, was to drive me crazy, get me crawling and screaming is what I'm talking about. Ugh, it's hard to be specific. Well, we're all adults, Newell said dryly. (sighs) Yeah, well, she loved to kiss me and touch me, you know, foreplay, whatever you call it. Sometimes she didn't mind having intercourse when she was having her period. I didn't particularly get excited about it. Why would you say this? A piece of shit. Oh, do you remember that night Newell pressed again? I don't remember. I know she drove me crazy. I know we did something. One of the things she liked to do was, you know, she used her hands at least to satisfy me. Did you get a climax that night? Oh, Every night. We'd known each other and been in love for too long. She knew what I liked and how to take care of me, and I took care of her. We tried very often not to do the same thing every night. We like to keep the fire and the excitement going. No one talks like this. No one? To police, too? (laughs) Was everyone still there playing cards? I don't honestly know. It didn't matter to her, and she had this way of getting me going, so it didn't matter to me. I don't know if anyone was still there or not. How... 
odd, how extremely odd that a man would begin an interview about the murder of his beloved wife by describing the most intimate details of their sex life. And that he didn't really prefer when they had sex when she was on her period. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, this is just shows what a scumbag Exactly. David knew paramount to his success at beating a murder rap was continuing to control Patty from behind bars. He already had lost control of Cinnamon. He began to write increasingly desperate letters to Patty, paternally loving ones from himself, and then romantic missives signed Doug, his amorous alter ego. At first, it did seem to work as Patty tried to insist that David was merely a father figure to her. But as they played recordings of David pointing the finger at her and excerpts from Arthur Brown's and Cinnamon's statements, she felt the walls closing in on her. With her attorney by her side, she spilled the beans. Without knowing exactly what Cinnamon had said, she managed to corroborate the story completely. The only new news was that David had been working on Patty to commit the crime far longer than Cinnamon. It was David's insistence that if Patty wasn't going to kill Linda for him, she would have to help convince Cinnamon to do it in her stead. So yeah, he had originally tried to get Patty to kill her own sister. Which is like so fucked. And then he must have been like, okay, well, if Patty won't do it, maybe I could kill two birds with one stone and get more insurance money with my own daughter. Gross. Mm -hmm. He doesn't deserve to be a father. No, absolutely not. Let alone of three beautiful young women. I know. What are the odds of that? Oh, my God. That also means that, like, Crystal and Heather are sisters and cousins. Oh. I know. Those poor baby girls. Still, it took days and several more interviews for Patty to admit that her relationship with David Brown was not strictly father and daughter. Like, I think this was really hard for her to admit. Oh. Because she she knew that people were going to look at this poorly, that her family would find out if this came out, you know? She let them know that they were married. Patty's testimony was enough to move forward with a preliminary hearing in Superior Court Judge Floyd Shank's courtroom on December 19, 1988. The hearing would determine whether David would be free to go or be bound for trial. Free to go? Yeah, so this is basically, I actually hadn't heard of something like this, but this is a preliminary hearing to decide what was going to happen with David, essentially. Is he going to be charged and what was he going to be charged with? But it was a possibility that he could not be charged with anything, you know? That's crazy. He wasn't – I know. It's totally nuts. But he wasn't physically present for the murders. And somebody had already been convicted of the crime, you know? So it's a kind of a legal gray area. For sure. And that's what they're hearing during this trial. Yeah. Sorry, I got really mad right now. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Don't worry. It all ends okay. I mean, as okay as it can end in a murder story. Okay. Um, Cinnamon testified against David, not meeting his eye. David seemed unperturbed. Cinnamon was dead to him, a lost cause the moment she agreed to wear a wire for the enemy. Oh, she wasn't before when you doused her mm -hmm. with fucking a whole bottle of pills and tried to get her to commit suicide after murdering your wife? I mean, he's a textbook sociopath. They don't look at humans like humans. They look at, like, how can they help me get the things Mm -hmm. I want, you know? So there was a break in the hearing for Christmas, so Patty didn't hit the stand until January 6, 1989. Now, this interested David. Would sweet, subservient Patty actually stand by her man? So he didn't know what Patty was going to stay here. She would not. Thank Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) 
Finally, Patty told her whole truth. She, like Cinnamon, averted her eyes from David as she related how David had instigated the murder plot and enlisted her and then Cinnamon to carry it out. But worst of all was the absolutely horrifying bombshell she dropped after her initial admission. David had been molesting her since she was 11 years old. Is that when she moved into their house or before? Mm -hmm. From the very first day that Patty had moved into David and Linda's house, which she had done to avoid (sighs) she was suffering there, David had begun sexually abusing her. Poor girl. I mean, she had no shot. Patty began to believe that this was just what grown men did. Poor girl. And in her thought process, at least David was gentler. That's what she said. Oh, my God. That makes me ill. It's so sad. David assured her it was normal. You're going to get so angry during this part. So also, this is a trigger warning. If anyone, if you have suffered sexual assault or molestation, you might want to skip ahead a minute or two. Oh, God, it's so terrible. David assured her it was normal that adult men always helped young girls out by teaching them about love. Just no one talked about it. Patty testified that David first encouraged her to perform oral sodomy upon him. He assured her that that was the way she would develop into a woman. He also fondled her flat chest, offering to do so because he said it would help her to develop breasts. (sighs) Unreal. It's just unbelievable. The abuse escalated and he began forcing sexual intercourse on her on her 15th birthday. It's that 15th birthday, man. At this point, she claimed the sex acts were consensual, but... I think we all can agree that there's no such thing as consensual when an adult takes advantage of a child for years. I was going to say, yeah, he's been manipulating her since before she was 11 because he was coming over to their house years before Mm -hmm. as well. So he was, I mean, he was literally working her for like a decade. (laughs) I mean, he came into her life, I think, when she was only like seven. Wow. Maybe younger. Yeah, like so she was she was the youngest. So she was like the baby of the family when he showed up. The most disgusting part though is like that you were supposed to be providing a safe haven, but also like where's Linda when all of that first started too? So they said that it it always happened when Linda was sleeping or when she went to the grocery store or when she went to run errands. Ugh. I mean, I would like if you know, if you knew your dude had a tendency for, like, younger girls and you move your little sister in, you, you your sister got to stay with you at all times. I I would like to think that she would do that. But, I mean, I, I think maybe the abuse that he put on Linda just became – like I mean, he controlled her Normalized mentally. it, yeah. He normalized the behavior. I mean, it sounds like during her pregnancy she finally was, like, waking up and mm-hmm. she was demanding that Patty move back in with her mom. Yep. But she didn't. She didn't win. I mean, David put his foot down and refused to have Patty move out of the house. Crazy. Oh, God. And this is just – it's so – it's so sad for Patty in so many ways. But also she has to tell this – tell this story in front of a court of people. And then she has to talk about how she married this guy, you know, and how she believed this was love. And I think she's probably waking up at this point to realizing it's abuse. I I feel like – 
the only thing that is positive about that is that she is forced to deal with it and hopefully she can break the cycle, you know, because I think there's so many sexually yeah. abused victims. It's just, uh, it's cyclic and maybe but she that's was. that's the whole thing. It's the fantasy. Like she has told herself that this is a love story in her head, mm-hmm. that this is, that David just loved her and he wanted to take care of her. And all of a sudden there's people saying, you know, this is wrong. That was rape. And I think that she's, she's shattered yeah you you know we talked a lot about with tall hot blonde last week about these fantasies that become our life and we all want to have the fantasy that we're in control of our own life and we make our own choices and we fall in love with the people we fall in love with it's kind of a type of fantasy shattered when she realizes she had been groomed and you know he was a predator you know yeah it is. I mean, I'm, I think that net net, it's better that she face this and get help and get healing. Yeah. So does she get out? Like, does she have a chance to like learn what actual love is or what happens? Kind of. Okay. Yeah, kind of. We'll talk about what happens with Patty in a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no wonder that these two very young teenage girls were talked into murder. The only man in both of their lives was David. And the manipulative psychopath had, like, groomed both girls to obey his every command, you know? Yeah, so she said, this is what Patty said on the stand. Patty had not seen her own father since she was a year old. As a little girl, she had felt so depressed that she had tried to suffocate herself with a pillow. David had convinced Patty that her mother sold her to him for $10,000, the business loss Ethel Bailey would sustain if she could not put Patty out for for prostitution. There was no indication other than David Brown's word that this was at all true, but Patty believed it. Of course. From the moment David took her into his home, she felt no longer like a black sheep, but felt like she had a family. In an interview with LA Times reporter Eric Lichtblau, Patty tried to explain the hold David had had over her. He'd let me sit on his lap and give me attention and tell me I'm a good kid and go out and buy me clothes and make me feel real good about myself. This was an 11-year-old child, the very last of 11 children born to poverty. He's a hell of a talker. If he told me the sky was purple, I'd have believed it. David was everything to me. He was my family. If I thought he was going to be taken away, that'd be like pulling the plug. Wow. Mm-hmm. So she was like, I would do anything like to help him if that meant like keeping him in my life. So on January 19th, 1989, Judge Shank ordered David Brown held over for trial for murder and conspiracy. So He's going to trial for murder and for a conspiracy to commit murder. Good. His trial was set for March 29th, 1989. Patty Bailey would face charges in juvenile court first because she had only been 17 at the time of the murder. So David's in jail and he's pissed off that he's lost both of his teenagers, but he's still scheming, motivated by anger at Patty's betrayal and, of course, a desire to get out of jail. David attempts a murder plot. Are you ready for this? Yes. This fucking idiot. He befriends two men while in prison and arranges to order hits on Patty Bailey, Jay Newell, the investigator, and the DA assigned to the case, Jeff Robinson. Stop. The two men. Yep. He wants to kill all three of them. The two men were Irv Cully and a real interesting cat named Richard Steinhardt. Everybody loves Richard. 
David initially asked the two men for help killing his enemies, and Starnhart agrees to, but later reveals to Irv Cully that he's having second thoughts because he had read about David's molestation of Patty in the newspaper. So before that, he had actually believed David's story that he was an innocent man who was being railroaded by his ex-wife and an angry teen daughter. But after he read that in the paper, he's like, oh, this guy's gross. Something's like not right here. So he, he had gone to Irv and was like, hey, you know, we I said that I was going to help him. Basically, like, Steinhardt was going to get out of prison earlier. And so he said that he was going to, like, kill the two guys himself. Okay. And that he'd arrange for a woman who he knew who was in the juvenile hall with Patty to kill her. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. And so after that – after he realizes that David's a scumbag, he goes to this guy, Irv, who was also supposed to be helping set up the hit and was like, I'm having second thoughts about this. This guy's a real scumbag. And Irv Cully was like, yeah, I'm really glad that you've come to that conclusion because I've already ratted out the plot to the DA. So Irv was a snitch. Oh, my God. So does Richard uh-huh. get away or is he okay? Well, Richard immediately calls the DA and Good. is like, hey, I'm part of this deal too. Um, you I, – like, I'll turn. I will wear a wire. I'll do whatever you want me to do Good. and trick this guy. But I'm not killing anyone. Yeah. You know? No. People in – like, honestly, in jail, they don't fuck with anyone who hurts children. You're getting your toast. You're lower than low. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So yes, all at this point that needs to be done is to set the trap. So Steinhardt is interesting because he's like this big – teddy bear of a man um he was a martial arts black belt in three different types of martial arts and he realized like he was really good at defending people and he's like this huge dude so he was a former hessian motorcycle gang member who had been the heavy for several drug running operations and he was like a like kind of like he'd went from a bouncer to a bodyguard to somebody that like broke kneecaps for people you know and he was caught for cocaine possession. Oh, God. Um, which, yeah, which was a drug he was, like, hopelessly addicted to. He had already been tapped to testify against these, like, drug runners in order to, like, get out. Like, so it was one of those situations where they caught him on the drug possession, but they were, like, keeping him so he would yeah. testify against the big op- big operation, you know? He had been, like, super addicted to cocaine, too. Um, I know. So I feel like you up- only get busted if you're addicted. Yes, exactly. It's like you He slip says up. later on – that he had a thousand dollar a day cocaine habit. That's like so much cocaine. three eight balls. That's like how do you still have a nose? Oh my god! Maybe he was shooting it. I don't know that. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, also a thousand dollar a day in the eighties. Whoa. Whoa! I know. So he ends up being a star witness for the prosecution, and the jury just loves him. I'm going to read you something the jury says later, and it's so funny. They just love Richard. So he's an honest, straight-shooter type. Um, They release him from prison and record his conversations with Brown, which incriminate Brown completely. Like, he's basically, like, when he's out, he's trying to set up the hits, but he's also trying to get um, Richard Steinhardt to burn down his mobile home for insurance money. And so they have him on – the phone taped, like, instructing Richard to do all these things for money. 
On Valentine's Day 1989, David finds out that he had been set up and that he would now be charged with three additional counts yes. of solicitation to commit murder, <gasps> solicitation to commit perjury, and conspiracy to commit arson because of the mobile home burning. Amazing. He's such an idiot. Mm-hmm. So this is Patty's reaction upon finding out that her husband tried to kill her. No one was more shocked than Patty Bailey when she learned that her husband had thoroughly intended that she would be dead by sundown on Valentine's Day. She told reporters that she figured, oh, come on. But the next day, Jay Newell filled her in on all the details and she began to cry and shake uncontrollably. I'm hurt, she finally whispered, but it's to be expected. Anything is to be expected. I believe it. I guess he likes to repeat history. It's like, yeah, he he got you Honey. to be in a murder plot for your sister, his fifth wife. Why wouldn't he try to kill his sixth wife? Yeah, come on, babe. So the new charges delayed David's trial until early the next year, but it was time for Patty to face the music. During the second week of May, Patty pled guilty to her sister's murder. Due to her young age and the mitigating condition of her years and years and years of mind-warping sexual abuse, yep. she only got four years. Great. She would be released on her 25th birthday, and she was also allowed to be remanded to the California Youth Authority. So she's allowed to be in, like, the younger women's prison, Good. like, where Cinnamon is, rather than, like, the the main general pop. 25, she still has hope for recovery. Yeah. and 21 and 25 is, like – you know, that's like going to college. Yeah, it's horrible, but it's it's not – I feel like she does have a uh, chance. Exactly. Yeah, if she had only been one year older at the time of the murder, she would have been up for 27 yep. years to life. Yeah. So it's like terrible what happened to her, but thank God it happened when she was like 17 and not 18. But also 27 to life was what they gave poor Cinnamon at 14. Mm-hmm. And so. that's because Cinnamon actually shot the gun, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's fair. I think that she was part of the the crime and like she had to do some of the time. Yep. Um, but I'm glad it was only four years. Me too. So David was now looking at two potential trials, the first for the murder of his fifth wife and the second for the murder plot to kill the prosecution <laughs> team and his sixth wife. Fucking moron. Uh. The murder trial began um, on April 25th, 1990, after several delays. The defense filed motions to exclude the murder for hire plans and get the lengthy initial interview thrown out, but both were rejected. Both stayed in, much to David Brown's detriment. Oh. <laughs> we don't feel bad for you, David. <laughs> so the defense was that the murder was cooked up by a jealous Patty who was eager to take Linda's place and a disturbed, mentally ill cinnamon who had already admitted and been charged with a crime. Does he know he can't so spin this shit anymore? Like, it's not... Yeah, and even his defense attorney is trying to say, it's like, this is the actions of two deranged teenagers. It's like, really? Yeah, who you've been... One of one of which, who knows what ever happened with cinnamon, too. I mean, I mm -hmm. would not put it past him, but you've been molesting since oh. she was 11. Yeah, in in the recorded conversation with um, the first one where it was just David and Cinnamon, he was so gross with Cinnamon. Like she was saying like she basically found out about Patty's pregnancy. And so in the recorded conversation, she's like, I heard that Patty's, you know, Patty had a baby. And she, he's like, yeah, um, it was just this guy or whatever. He's like, she's like, are you sure that it wasn't you? Like, I know I saw you guys kissing that day at Walmart. Like, are you sure that you're not the father of Patty's baby? Like, Cinnamon was really pressing him. And he's like, no, you know, she's like, 
a daughter to me, you know? And he, she's like, yeah, that's why it'd be gross. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, I'm sure that da- like fathers have sex with their daughters all the time anyway. And he said that in the conversation to Cinnamon. And Cinnamon was like, oh, gross dad. And then like kept going. Okay. So you, you don't think anything ever happened with them? It, the way he said it was gross, but they both seemed to like play it off as a joke. Like she didn't say like, yeah, I know because of what you did to of me course. or anything. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was mostly very – other than like covering up the crime initially, she was mostly outspoken. So I feel like it would have come up. Okay. David alleged he had never had sex with Patty nor instructed the girls to kill Linda. And so I looked it up and, like, I guess that um, DNA tests that prove paternity weren't super popular at this time. They were still kind of um, garnering new technology. It was by, like, the mid-90s that this, like, that the technology was really there. So So Maury didn't happen until the mid-90s? I guess not because I I was like, this seems really weird. This took place in 1990. Seems like they could prove yeah. that he had sex with Patty by proving the paternity of the baby. Yeah. And they never did. And it looked like the technology started to be around in the very late 80s. So I think that it's possible it was around, but it said it didn't really um, – like it didn't really start happening a lot until the mid-90s. Huh. Yeah. So I'm not really sure. I think it existed, but I don't know why they didn't use it in this trial. Maybe it was too expensive at the time or something. Yeah. And they thought that they could just prove it otherwise just through Patty's testimony. Yeah. I mean, mean, if you can, then it's like whatever. Yeah. So the prosecution's case rested mainly on the testimonies of Cinnamon, Patty, and Richard Steinhardt, as well as the videotape of David's first interrogation, which was also a little problematic because literally at this point, Cinnamon, Patty, and Richard had all been convicted of crimes. So their three star witnesses were all convicts, which obviously never looks good to a jury. But they also had the videotape of David's interrogation. They had the audio tapes of David with Cinnamon, but also the audio tapes of David setting up the hits and congratulating Steinhardt when the hit had been accomplished. (laughs) Yeah. So they had a lot of David on his with his own voice doing enough work for everybody. Yeah. Cinnamon and Patty's testimonies were similar to the hearing, still excruciating to listen to and damning to David Brown. Steinhardt's testimony followed. He was an energetic giant bear of a man wearing black leather and was covered with like biker tattoos. Oh my God. (laughs) He could have seemed intimidating, but his booming voice was warm and his manner was funny and self-deprecating. The jury immediately took to him. He outlined his issues with drugs and alcohol, including the thousand dollar day cocaine habit I mentioned. Why he had been in jail and was the first to admit that he hadn't always been a stand-up guy. Steinhardt discussed how he met David Brown, when and how he decided to turn on him, and how he assisted the DA. Like, basically, like, the defense was trying to say, like, you just did this to get yourself out of trouble. And he's like, yeah, kind of, but also this guy's a scumbag, and I learned that, and I got out ahead, you know? Um, He spoke openly and honestly about David's requests and anger at his ex-wife, Patty, how he requested the death of the prosecution team, be taken out first, and then Patty killed by a woman Steinhardt knew who was in the same prison facility. At one point, Steinhardt faltered and requested a break to take some pills. Steinhardt revealed to the court that after prison and witness protection, which he had also needed because he testified in a case regarding the Hessian motorcycle gang, he had found God in rehab after becoming sober And repenting for his many sins, he was rewarded with a beautiful wife whom he had recently married. Sadly, only days after the wedding, he became ill and tested HIV positive. 
Oh, mm-hmm. no. So he probably was shooting up, huh? I think he was, yeah. That had been four weeks ago, and only nine days ago, he had found out that he had full-blown AIDS. No. A hush fell over the court. Anne Rule wrote, There was a real sense of loss in the room. So far in the trial, the bombastic biker had been the runaway favorite. So everyone was super bummed. And his wife was there to bring him the pills. Like, she brought them up to the stand for him. And, like, she was, like, this beautiful blonde. And she seemed so happy and so in love with him. Oh. After the lunch break, the defense attorney found it very difficult to cross-examine Steinhardt because he agreed amiably to every negative thrown his way. Like, the defense attorney was like, and you went to jail for this because you're a bad guy. And he's like, yeah, you're right. I was a really shitty guy. <laughs> like, he just, like, wouldn't argue with him. He was just like, yeah, you know, I made some real big mistakes in my life, you know? Like, he just, like, there was no way he could, like, trap him, you know, or make him look bad to the jury. Love him. Yeah, he was the first to admit everything. So the prosecution also called David's insurance agent who reported the $843,626 windfall David had received after Linda's death, which would be over $2 million in today's money. Mm-hmm. After closing statements, the jury retired at 12 minutes to 3 p.m. on June 13, 1990. After three days of deliberation, the jury found David Brown guilty of all three charges. I thought you were going to say guilty as fuck. Guilty as fuck. Guilty of being a disgusting POS. (laughs) David was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Nice. I love it when they're locked up forever. Yep. They call that – Anne Rule called it L-WAPT. In the book, she says it's called LWAPT when somebody is life without the possibility of parole. Oh my God, love her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeff Robinson, Jay Newell, and Fred McLean, the triumvirate of men who had believed that there was more to the story from the very beginning, all breathed a sigh of relief. After the initial round of congratulations, Jeff excused himself to make one very important phone call. When he was put through, he said, Cinnamon, it's over. The jury found him guilty. I want you to remember that starting right now, this is the first day of the rest of your life. Oh, so cute. And then I'm going to read what the uh, jury said. So this is from the Anne book. And the David Brown jury, finally allowed to talk, explained that they had actually deliberated for only a short time. Our first vote was eight guilties and four undecided. On the second day, we watched the arrest tape. And on the third day, we watched more tape. We only deliberated seven hours. The tape convinced us. We watched David Brown completely turn around from what he said at the beginning of his interview with Noel. One of the female jurors admitted that she had been shocked at the extent of the sexual perversion discussed. I've never been exposed to anything like that. Another more worldly juror said, oral sex? I cannot imagine allowing that man to even touch my arm. (laughs) Several women jurors had caught David's easy explanation to Patty and Cinnamon on the CYA tape. That's the California Youth Authority tape. Yeah. That fathers often had sex with their daughters. That it was no big deal. That did not make guilty of murder they stressed but it demonstrated the way his mind worked and made it easier for them to see how he could manipulate the teenagers their most believable witness unanimously richard steinhardt richard steinhardt was a breath of fresh air a heretofore shy woman juror exclaimed we had no trouble believing him he had nothing to gain by lying and nothing to lose So uh, I'm sad to let you know that Richard Steinhardt did die. I had a feeling. Um, 
he like be- totally became like this like born again like leader of like rehab and helping other people like get off drugs and turn their lives around and like became a beacon of hope for other people and he went by the name Liberty at the end of his life and he was with his wife until he passed oh yeah so he even though it was like a really sad story that it took him like you know getting this deadly disease to really like turn his life around, even though he was starting to turn it around before he found out he actually like lived a wonderful life of service before he passed away. Cool. Yep. So the wind out of his sails for good, David pled guilty to the murder for hire plot and was given six additional years to run concurrent with his life sentence. On July 18th, 1990, both Jay Newell and Jeff Robinson appeared before the juvenile parole board to speak on Cinnamon's behalf. They urged the board to consider her next appearance before the board, probably in 1991, in a favorable light. There had never been a deal in place, but both Newell and Robinson felt it was high time Cinnamon had someone on her side. Yeah. Cinnamon would finally be freed in 1992. Jay Newell, his wife Betty, and their two daughters took Cinnamon under their wing, and she lived with the family until she was prepared to live on her own. She was only 21 years old when she was released, but still very much like the teenager she had been when her life stopped those seven years before. When she finally did walk free, the Newells gave her Christmas and birthday presents for every year she had missed. Jeff Robinson was there at parties and barbecues, and they all helped her learn how to drive and bought her first car for her. Oh, my God. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Where's her mom? I don't know. Oh, man. It was like her other daughter, I guess. Man. I I don't actually know. I think that they had a fine relationship, but – She really trusted these people, you know. Cinnamon had learned quite a lot booking flights for airlines. So that was her job at the California Youth Authority is that they had like a prisoner – like because they're all they're all young women they basically had a prisoner education program where you could like do certain types of work and like make a like a stipend of money so cool while doing on the job training and she had worked for an airline while she was in the prison so she ended up having a successful career as a travel agent and then she worked for like um major travel related corporation and like worked her way up the ladder so cool there Mm-hmm. She wed when she was 25 and had a little boy. Tragically, her husband committed suicide when he was 40, but she has since remarried to a man in law enforcement and lives in Orange County, California. As of 2019, according to her Facebook profile, she looks like she's living a very happy life. Oh, and her good. Facebook intro says simply smiling. Oh, Yeah, so Cinnamon did okay. So Patty Bailey Brown had a much harder time in life. I think that it was really hard on her family to accept that she had been a part of this plot to kill her own sister. Of course. And I feel like they probably – you know when people are guilty that they like push you away because they don't want to face what they did? It was like that. I think it was like that. So she didn't really have a lot of support in her own family. I was going to say, I mean, it was hard for you guys to think of how hard it was for her. And it's just they don't want to face it and be there for her. They, like, can't. No, I don't think they were a a big, like, looking inside at themselves group, to be honest. It probably, like, they were mad at her, too, because I think a lot of, like, the stories about her mother's neglect and her brother's molesting her came out in the trial. Yep. 
So they probably were like, you made us look bad, yep. you know? So there's that as well. She and Cinnamon ended up housed in the same prison complex, but never could quite mend fences. The damage was too deep. And it was exacerbated by David continuously still writing to Patty, but never again to Cinnamon, which honestly is much better for Cinnamon, even though it hurt her feelings. But I guess Patty would bring it up to Cinnamon like, oh, did your dad write you? Because he, he writes me all the time. Yeah. And there was still a very like twisted dynamic there. Patty did end up reconnecting to the grown-up baby Crystal. Crystal started a memorial page for her mother on Facebook under Linda Marie Brown, and it still exists if you guys want to check it out. In July of 2018, Crystal posted this to the page. I think it's time I told you all something. I finally met Patty face-to-face a little while back. I'll tell you all the truth. I couldn't cry. It's not from lack of emotion at all. It's from the fact that I came to terms with everything long ago, and I forgave her long before I even ever talked to her. It's true, I have never, ever been an emotional person at all. Even my husband has only seen me cry once or twice in the 15 years we've been together. Sure, I might get misty-eyed, but that's it. I'll tell you guys, she did cry a lot, and I knew she had to let it all out. All I could do was hug her and tell her it's okay. I forgive her completely and blame her for absolutely nothing. She was a victim just as much as me in my eyes. I plan on spending time with her more and getting to know her better. We have a lot to catch up on after all. I need to tell you all that the woman some of you hate is non-existent. What you've read and heard and seen on TV is not the same person I met. Keep in mind this tragedy happened over 30 years ago. I know she has changed a lot since then and I can only imagine the pain and heartache and torment she went through. People change a lot in 30 years and me and her are ready for a new beginning. Smiley face. Aww. Yeah, she's really sweet. So Crystal, Grown Up Crystal is also on the Murder Board episode if you guys want to check it out. And she's clearly a woman who's had a lot of pain in her life. She got to never know her mom. I mean, she talks about how there's pictures, but there's not even video recordings of her mom. So she's never even heard her mother's voice. Oh, my God. Wow. Well, she is so eloquent. She really is. Yeah. I mean, and she's very well spoken on the the episode as well. And she's she's just really an incredible woman. So I, I hope that Crystal and Patty kept in touch and I hope that they're both at peace now. Yeah, hopefully that's a good uh, little light for Patty. Yeah, I think so too. Um, Jay Newells did say at the end of the murder board episode that like Patty was living a really like upstanding life. So like, you know, even if emotionally she's had a hard time, it looks like she got a great job and she's had a family since and she's she's really like worked on herself. So Good. hopefully it all turned out okay. Good. So David Brown, that dirtbag, died in prison of natural causes at the age of 61 in 2014. And I hope it was painful. <laughs> Very painful. Do we have any idea of what? Uh, no, it was probably one of his a million illnesses. It what just if said it natural causes. Was colon cancer and he was bleeding from the asshole. I really hope it was. I hope that like karma really bit him right in the rectum. There. Had to have. I'm sure he got some <laughs> other things in his rectum. Good. I hope he did. <laughs> All right. So in closing – Uh, don't try to set up a hit from prison. It's not going to work out. People are just going to hate you and you're going to get in trouble. 100%. Stay the fuck away from teenage girls. Period. Yeah, unless you are literally also a teenager, don't look at teenage girls. Don't touch them. Don't think about them. Ever. Gross. You're gross. Get yourself some help. (laughs) And, as always, remember... We're all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered.
Good night. Bye. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. Thank you.